for that, Abby. All right, we are uh, continuing in a series uh, we are doing called You Asked For It. And so uh, all these messages over the summer are um, requested by, by you guys. And so we had a couple questions on the topic of singleness. And so last week we started in on singleness and we're going to talk again about singleness this week. Next week we'll get on to a different question. Uh, but this is an important topic uh, because as we talked about last week, uh, singleness in Canada is growing and growing uh, quite quickly. There are more people living on their own. Uh, there are more people who are not married or not living together. Uh, there are more and more singles. And so this becomes uh, an important issue for uh, for us to figure out how does the kingdom work with singleness? And that was that was one of the questions. How does kingdom work with, with singleness? And last week we talked about three different kinds of singles uh, because sometimes we just assume all singles are the same. Uh, there are different kinds of singles. There uh, are voluntary, uh, there's the voluntary singleness, and these are people who have chosen to be single, and they love being single. Uh, not all singles out there want to be married. Not all single people are just like, you know, I just can't stand this. I hate being single. Uh, there are a number of singles who just love being single. And uh, there should be no stigmatism, as we talked about last week, or stigma, not stigmatism, <laughs> a stigma when it comes to being single. Uh, because, um, because I, mean, I guess we talked about last week, after all, the guy we followed, Jesus, was single, right? Uh, the, the, the Bible actually holds up high uh, the, I, uh, the idea of singleness. And so we, as followers of Jesus, should not look down on people who choose to be single. We shouldn't be trying to hook them up if they don't want to be hooked up. Uh, there are some people who are just voluntary uh, singles. They love it. And we honor that. And we respect that here. And then there's the involuntary single, and this is the person who really wants to be in a relationship with somebody, uh, but they haven't found somebody. And, and, and this can be very painful for some singles. It can cause a lot of grief and a lot of sorrow and because they, they want more than anything else uh, to, to find someone that they can serve and love and be connected to and enjoy a life together. And, and so this would be the involuntary single. And this message is more focused around the involuntary single. Last week... We talk more about the voluntary single. And then there's the involuntary single who's got a parental drive. Uh, that they just long to be a parent. Uh, they long to hear you know, someone say mom or dad. And, and they love children. And, and so the pain of singles for them is missing out on being able to raise, raise children of their own. And because there's lots of different kinds of singles, we need to be careful when we're talking to singles, that we assume what kind of single we're talking to. So again, we're not trying to hook someone up when they don't want to be hooked up, or they're not, maybe they're taking a break for a little while. So various kinds of uh, single people. Now I want to look today at some sort of common str uh, struggles that single people uh, struggle with. And this is more for the involuntary single, the, the single person who wants to be in a relationship with somebody, but it just hasn't manifested itself. And one of those is self-ridicule. And that is, there, there must be something wrong with me. Uh, maybe this single person has you know, tried to go on dates or tried to connect with people and they've been rejected. Or maybe they've tried to make moves and they've just been turned down. And so they begin to wonder, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me. You know, they look around, maybe some of their friends got, are getting married. I mean, we did a wedding here yesterday and it was beautiful and wonderful. And, and for single people, that can be hard because they're like, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. 
Uh, I mean, the reality is there's actually something wrong with all of us. Uh, I mean, none of us are perfect. Uh, but the bigger reality is that your identity is not to be based on whether someone chooses you or not. And it's just the reality of living in this world that part of, of, of love means that there are times when we're going to be rejected. Uh, but we don't base our identity on whether someone receives us or not or says yes or no to us because our identity is found in, in, in God, in God's love for us. And even if someone doesn't choose you, we know that in the end we are chosen by God. And if someone doesn't choose to love you, in the end, we know we are loved by God. And, and this is where there's a beautiful passage, one of my favorite passages in Ephesians. It says, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. And so... Even if you're not chosen in this world, God chooses you, and he loves you, and he wanted to bring you in and adopt you, and you are a part of the family. You're a part of the family of God. And so as we touched on last week, uh, that uh, I am deeply loved and fully forgiven and totally accepted in Christ. God alone is the final authority on my self-worth and identity. But again, we don't base our identity, uh, although it can be difficult sometimes when uh, we, we just feel that it's not going anywhere, and why, why isn't nobody choosing me? Again, we need to make sure that we base our identity in the reality of God's love for us. Uh, your identity is not based on whether someone chooses you or not. Your identity is not based on whether you're married or single. Your identity is not based on whether you're conservative or liberal. Your identity is not based on whether you're Canadian or Syrian. Your identity is not based on whether you're LGBTQ plus or you're straight. You're, you're not, your identity is not based on whether you drive a Volkswagen or a Ford. I mean, it's, it's, it's in Jesus. That's where identity is found. And so we don't let uh, this, this idea, if you're single, just, you know, why do we keep being rejected? Don't, don't let that saturate into your identity. Make sure you're grounded in the one who has the authority Amen. on who you are, and that is God himself. Amen. Another one is this, uh, anger towards God. Uh, and that is, uh, why won't God provide a spouse for me? <laughs> why won't God provide a boyfriend or a girl for me? Why, God, aren't you helping out here? Because I really, 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 really want to be single or uh, married. Uh, God, where are you? And if you're single, especially for a long time, because I know singles who have been praying really, really hard uh, for a spouse or for someone to connect to, and it just doesn't seem to be happening. And so sometimes there can be actually anger towards God. Uh, God, why aren't you showing up? God, why uh, are you bringing this man or are you bringing this woman in, into my life? And we need to understand that uh, God very well will be rooting for you. Uh, maybe God's will for you to be connected and married, but we realize we're living in a broken world. And we realize that God's will is not always done in this world. Well, almost every page of the Bible, you see places where God's will is not being done. I mean, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says God wants all people to be saved. Uh, but that's not always a reality. Uh, God's will for us is never to hurt anybody, but we do. Uh, God's will is not always done. And God's will is not always done in our relationships, in, in, in our connections with other people. Uh, God himself, we see in Jesus, at one time in Matthew 23, he's, he's crying over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, 
How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Here's a picture of God wanting connection, uh, wanting relationship with his people, but they were not willing. I mean, the very nature of God being loved means he can't force people to love him. And God can't force someone to love you either. It's the nature of, uh, of just how the laws of free will and the laws of love work. I mean, God does not, uh, you know, you're not, you're just, it's not going to work. You're just sitting on the couch and say, God, I just need somebody. And then all of a sudden, out of heaven flies this perfect man, you know, just <laughs> lands on the couch and says, I'm here to marry you. I mean, <laughs> I think things tend not to work that way. And, and, and God, again, maybe just like, he, uh, rooting for you. Like, let's make this happen. Let's partner together. But we've got to be careful for blaming God uh, for things that, that he's not doing. And so um, uh, God may be uh, rooting for you. But again, the law of love is God doesn't force people to love him. He can't force someone to love you. But what God can do is he can certainly influence people. And through your prayers, God can influence people and he can influence someone to, to maybe even fall in love with you or to, to work in those areas. So this is where you need to be praying and listening to the Father. And you need to be just walking with him and seeing where, where he leads. Now another uh, common struggle, and we touched on this again last week. The idea of loneliness. Uh, and this is just the idea I have no one to share my life with. And I'm really, really lonely. Uh, we talked about this last week because this is somewhat of a myth when it comes to singleness. Because the reality is there's tons of married people who are very lonely as well. And last week we looked at this quote where it says, Being married offers no protection from the dangers of loneliness. Studies indicate that roughly 20% of the general population suffers from chronic loneliness at any given time. And in one recent study of older adults, 62.5% of people who reported being lonely were married and living with their partner. Uh, that this idea that I'm so lonely and I'm alone and marriage somehow is going to fix it, it may help. It may really help for a while. But again, statistically, there's lonely people who are single and lonely people who are married. And statistically, actually single people actually tend to have more friends and more social, so, social connections than, than married people. Uh, 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 Bella DiPaolo, who is a studies singleness, PhD, said this, that singles... They are more likely than married people to encourage, help, and socialize with their friends and neighbors. They are also more likely to visit, support, and uh, advise, and stay in touch with their siblings and parents. In fact, people who live alone are often the life of their cities and towns. They tend to participate in more civic groups and public events, enroll in more arts and music classes, and go out to dinner more often than people who live with others. Single people, regardless of whether they live alone, or with others, also volunteer more for social service organizations, educational groups, hospitals, and organizations devoted to the arts uh, than, uh, than people who are married. In contrast, when couples move in together or get married, they tend to become more insular, even if they don't have children. And so uh, if you're feeling alone as a single, well, there's lots of married people who are alone as well. And, and the answer is you just need community. You need people. Whether you're married or single, you need to have relationships outside of your marriage because there's no way, even when you are married, that your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend can meet all of your needs for a community. 
Um, and this is one of the reasons that sometimes marriages get in trouble because all the weight of our social needs falls on our spouse and they possibly can't meet all that. And so we get frustrated when we were designed actually be, to be in community with much more than just one person. And so make sure you're coming to church, chatting with people, be, be involved, uh, try to make friends uh, if you are lonely. And the idea that, that, that for the follower of Jesus, that God has placed you in a family. And for many people, this becomes their family. And I know there are people here that this family here is actually more close to them than their biological family. I mean, Jesus said, uh, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and my sisters? And he, he looked out and he, was, he said, it's my disciples, my followers. And so if you're single here, you're a part of a family. If you're married, you're a part of a greater family. And, and, uh, and we love uh, just getting together. Amen. All right, number four. Uh, the other struggle for single, involuntary singles is often with sexual desire. I mean, how do I handle my sex drive when I'm single? And again, there's a little bit of a myth to this because this is a huge issue in marriage, too. Uh, that marriage is not going to solve all your frustrations with, with sexual stuff. Um, in fact, there's a million books out there dealing with sexual issues in marriage and counselors and stuff dealing with sex issues within marriage. This is not going to solve everything, but still, if you're single, this is often a, a, a very common struggle. Like, what do I do? i got a really strong drive. It's true. Uh, both men and women can have very strong drives. Some have less. Some don't have much at all. Uh, but for a single who's got a higher drive, what do you do when you don't, you're not in a relationship with, with, with somebody? And, and this is actually more difficult in our world today than it was, say, in Jesus' day or uh, through most of history. I mean, through most of history, people got married at a very young age. Through most of history, it would, it would be arranged marriages. Uh, in, in Roman law, uh, the legal age for marriage for a woman was 12 and 14 for a guy. In Jewish law, it was 12 for the, the woman and 13 for the guy, provided they had gone through pu puberty. If they have gone through puberty, you were ready for marriage when you were 12 or 13 years old. Uh, most marriages happened when you were a teenager uh, through, through lots of years of history. And we see in Jeremiah 29.6 this idea of, of these arranged marriages, which were common uh, throughout history. Prophet Jeremiah says to the Israelites, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. And so it was up to the men, the fathers of the home, to find a husband for their daughter. And sometimes this would be made when, you know, kids were six or seven, they'd be chatting to their neighbor and say, hey, you know, you know our kids get older, let's hook them up, and you'd have an arranged marriage. Often it had to do with political reasons or alliances, uh, reasons for governments and that kind of thing. But they were all arranged marriages. It happened very, very young. And so for a lot of history, as soon as you started having sexual desires, you, you got married. And so there was not this years and years of waiting for marriage to happen. But we know now that people wait longer and longer and longer. At one time, the average age of marriage in Canada was 24. Now, uh, Canadians aged 20 to 24, only 3.7% are married. I mean, a lot of people wait until their 30s or 40s to get married. Um, it can be a long wait. Uh, even people just you know, living common law together. People wait longer. There are more singles. And so, again, this question is, uh, what do I do with my sex drive? But it's even more difficult because we're also living in a culture that freely express, uh, expresses sexuality. Uh, movies, TV shows, everywhere we see, we see sexuality, which just creates more stimulus uh, for us. But, you know, this is not all bad. Because lots of history 
sexuality was looked down upon as evil and awful and gross, and you better not talk about it. At least in our culture, we can talk about this, this gift that is from God, and it's good. I mean, there's a lot of good things about the idea of our culture freely expressing sexuality, but there's also a lot of evil things, and uh, I mean, sex trafficking and, and, and stuff like that. A lot of, uh, you know, heinous sexual things go out there in, in our sexual world, but it's very sexualized. And so, again, it's harder when you're waiting longer for, married, for marriage, and there's just more stimulus in, in our culture. And then on top of that, um, there was this thing through a lot of history called affectionate friendships, which we don't tend to have in our culture anymore. Uh, Stephanie Kuntz, in her book, Marriage History, which is a history of marriage, talks about how, at least in the West, we have lost this idea of affectionate friendships. We pretty much have two categories, and that's kind of somewhat superficial, maybe close friends, and then a relationship with their sex, and it's kind of like the two categories. But for a lot of history, there was another category. Uh, you still see this in places of the world where you will go to Africa sometimes, and you will see two guys walking down the street holding hands. And, and, and they're not gay, or there's nothing weird, it's just affectionate friendships. Or a lot of history, people would give affectionate kisses, would sit, you know, two guys would sit at a bench and just hold each other as they were watching something. And there's nothing odd about that. Um, but we don't have a, a spot for that in our Western culture anymore. And a lot of our desire for, for sexuality is actually part of this is a desire for affection. And because we don't have a lot of touch in our culture, um, that there's this greater desire that I have a, a bigger hole in my life, and so I just need to find someone to have sex with, when a lot of it is just, I just need a hug, and I need someone I can touch and hold on to. Uh, but we don't have that in our culture anymore. I mean, we see this in the Bible with Jonathan and David. After Jonathan passed away, David said, you know, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You're, you were uh, very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. Now, it would be odd today, because I mean, if I looked at Troy and say, you know, Troy, your love is more wonderful than that of a woman, you might think that Jesse's finally come out of the closet or something like that, right? Uh, because we don't have a category for this. But a lot of history, they had this. And so, again, our culture, it, it is very difficult for a single person who wants to be married, who has a, a sex drive. Again, the question is like, what do I do? How do I navigate that as a follower of, of Jesus? Well, when we turn to the Bible, uh, we see Paul gives this advice in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. Again, as we talked about last week, Paul looked at singleness as, as, as something that was wonderful. He loved his singleness. He wanted everybody else to be single. But he also talked about some people have the gift of marriage. Some people have the gift of singleness. But he likes single people. Uh, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there is so much sexual immorality, he's talking to the Corinthians, who in their city had a temple where people from all the city would go to worship that god. And the way you worship the god was you to have sex with prostitutes. And it was just a common part, as common as it is we go to church. They would have people that went to this temple, and so there's a lot of sexual immorality in Corinth. So he says, because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. I wish everyone were single, just as I am, yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. I say to those who are married and to widows, it is better to stay unmarried, just as I am, but if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It is better to marry than burn with lust. And so Paul's saying, if you're just like, I want to have sex, I'm burning with lust. Paul says, you need to get married. 
bonus. Because if you're an involuntary single, you're like, duh. <laughs> I want to be married. <laughs> I'm burning with lust, but that still doesn't help me. And it's not very helpful. Um, you know, it might be somewhat, but again, their culture is just different uh, than, than, than our culture. On top of that, we see Paul also says this, which even makes it even more confusing. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, do not deprive each other. He's talking to married people or uh, talking to married people. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual, sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. However long that is, I don't know, hours or a day or a week, I don't know how long that prayer is. But he says, if you take a time out for prayer or for fasting or you put that aside, make sure you come together. Why? Why do they need to have frequent sex? Why does Paul say that? Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Because you have these sexual desires and you may be tempted to go to the temple, uh, which was very easy in that day. And so... Uh, Paul says, make sure, because Satan is in there, that if you're married, you have sex with each other. But again, how does this help the single? Because Satan is tempting the married couple who has not had sex in a while to sin. Well, what about the single whom Satan is still tempting, but doesn't have a spouse? Now, sometimes we, we forget to think about this because just as Satan is tempting married people, he's tempting single people to go to the temple, you know, go up to the hill to the temple of Aphrodite and go have sex with a prostitute, or today it might be, be other, other amenities. So how does this work? Well, like I always say, within the realm of Christianity, we disagree on a lot of things, and there's lots of different opinions out there. And if I were to sort of take the various answers and boil down and just totally oversimplify it and put it into two categories, there would be two common answers within sort of Christianity. How to, how to deal with this? Uh, one would say this, that single people need to rebuke their sexual, uh, sexual desires. Don't think about sex. Sexuality is only appropriate in marriage. Uh, so they would just say, just, just, it's all about discipline. You just don't think about sex. If you start thinking about sex, just start thinking about, I don't know, something else. Uh, basically, pretend you're asexual. Uh, just think sex is horrible, rotten, evil, and gross, and so you save it for the one you love, and then it's awesome, beautiful. Uh, I mean, this is just all about discipline. Don't do anything sexual, don't think about sex, don't touch yourself, it's just, it's just bad. But the problem is, often this advice comes from married people towards singles. <laughs> Secondly, we know with anything, when it comes to, I mean, you take something, you try to stuff it down, it's like holding a ball under the water, I mean, you can do it for a while with the discipline, but eventually it's going to pop up somewhere. And so we see a lot of circles where this is taught. You see a lot of sexual sin that's hidden. And nobody will talk about it because, you know, you don't want to talk about it because you got a lot of shame if you talk about it. And so it's just a hidden thing which pops up in all kinds of inappropriate ways. Another answer within Christianity is this. Sexuality and sexual desire is natural, good, and created by God. Single people should acknowledge their sexuality and are free to enjoy uh, solo sexual pleasures. Uh, that it's good, it's created by God, it's true. Uh, God created the body, he created all the parts, he created the pleasures, um, and it's not just for procreation, because we know on the woman God created a part that only has to do with sexual pleasure. I mean, God created all this. I mean, it wasn't when you know God looked down at Adam and Eve, and like, whoa, what are you doing? I mean, I, just, I didn't design it that way. I mean, he, he knew. Dr. Julie Slattery said this. 
Your sexuality is not compartmentalized, waiting for marriage. It is integrated into all the aspects of your being, intellectual, emotional, relational, and spiritual. It is, uh, it's a core part of who God created you to be. And so as a single person, you don't ignore your desires. You don't try to just kind of discipline it away. I mean, um, but you try to, you can talk about that. I mean, it's free to talk about your struggles. I mean, we're not ashamed about that here in a church, nor should you be. Uh, Megan Robinson put it this way. Uh, one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the last few years is that both my sexuality and sensuality come from God. I enjoy and appreciate that my body is made to give and receive pleasure in many ways. This includes feasting my eyes on a Texas sunset, relishing a cold soda on a hot day, fixing a meal that my friends enjoy, getting a bear hug from a dear friend, and yes, exploring my own body. Pleasure is a whole being experience, and it has helped me immensely to learn how to delight in being part of God's creation. And so this view would be more say that, I mean, if you have those sexual desires, that there are honorable ways to self-stimulate yourself to release those. And of course, it would need to be done in, you know, ways that honor and glorify God. Uh, you don't do it in lusting after your neighbor's wife or looking at a screen lusting after somebody. Uh, but the, the people in this category would teach that you would just focus in on the pleasures that God has created. You'd focus in on scenarios that are honoring to those around you and to God. Um, but this idea that you are a sexual being and that there are ways as a single person to navigate that. But still, in the end, you've got to exercise self-control just as married people do. Uh, just because you're married, this issue does not go away. A lot of marriages struggle with a higher drive and a lower drive. And there's health issues. There's lots of things. And so just to navigate this... And God, in terms of your own conscience, because some of you will lie in different spots on this, and that's okay. And so, um, but don't stuff it, don't ignore it, don't think it's evil, awful, and gross, because if you do that, it'll probably sneak up somewhere in some sort of sin that you're going to hide from everybody else, and that's just not helpful in the end. All right, last one uh, is confusion, and that is, I'm single, I just don't know what to do. I've tried stuff, and I'm confused, and I just don't know what to do. If you don't know what to do, good news is we know someone who does know what to do, and, and, that, and that is God himself. I love this verse in 2 Chronicles 20. It says this, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This happens a lot in my life, probably yours. I have just no clue what to do, but my eyes are on you because I know you know what to do. And all the wisdom we need in the world is found in Christ. And our relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 2, it says, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this is where, if you're confused, you lean in to the Father and just allow him to guide you through this process. Um, now, the Bible doesn't have a lot of tips on, on dating. Because, again, the Bible is written in a day where it's arranged marriages. Though, interestingly enough, it's interesting that um, uh, Christians when the early church actually started to allow uh, people within their churches to choose their own spouse. They did that for a while. Um, so any wisdom. But here's one of the questions I think if you are confused that you need to settle in your mind. And you might just want to settle in your mind for this for the next year or next six months or for a lifetime is to try to settle this in your mind whether you actually want to be married or remain single. And to not just to kind of waffle between the two. Do I want to be married or do I want to stay single? And this is an important question, and, and again, Paul, he, he addresses this. He says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. 
An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. In other words, if you're married, you're going to, in a sense, have divided interests. That you can't spend all your days investing in your career and forget about your marriage. You can't spend all your time investing in, you know, kingdom work across the globe and traveling and speaking when you have a family. I love what a scholar Craig Bloomberg said. He said, not many Western Christians give adequate consideration to the possibility of remaining unmarried for the sake of wholehearted devotion to the Lord's work. More need to do so. Examples such as the international influential Anglican pastor John Stott or the widely heralded Southern Baptist missionary Lodi Moon have demonstrated how much one life can accomplish when freed from the demands of family. Many Christian preachers, from John Wesley to contemporary workaholics, would have been better off unmarried rather than going through the agony of watching their marriages fall apart after years of neglect. William Carey's marvelous missionary career remained somewhat tarnished because of the sacrifices he demanded of his wife, Dorothy, who eventually lost her mind. Some of this heartache could surely have been avoided if couples unprepared to count the costs simply had not married in the first place. In other words, a single life looks different than a married life. And if you're in a committed relationship, then you have to live with divided interests. You can't, you know, work 60 hours a week at your career trying to build your career because your marriage is going to fall apart. Um, if you're single, you can do that. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can just do your own thing. You can invest in the Lord's work. You can invest in your career because you don't have to have divided interests. And so some of you want to settle in your mind. What kind of life do I want to live? Do I want to be investing in my spouse and living with divided interests, maybe not reaching the top of my career because I have a divided interest? Or do I want to just shoot for the moon and spend all my time doing this thing? It's a good thing to kind of work through and, and to pray through. And some people and their spouse, they work together. And they both shoot for the moon in their career, and, and that's possible. But um, I just want to finish with this quick dating tips. Again, Bible doesn't have any dating tips because there's no such thing back in the day. Um, you may not, not agree with these tips, but they're free. <laughs> uh, first of all, be faithful with your current life and work towards a future marriage. If you're single and wanting to be married, uh, be faithful with your current life. I mean, the Bible has this principle, when you are faithful with what you have, God will often add more. Be faithful with your character development. Be faithful with the money. Be faithful with the time you have. Be faithful, and God may add more. And he may open up doors, again, maybe for a spouse in the future, but also begin to work towards a future marriage. Like, if you settle, I want to be married, then maybe you start taking some of your income and save, start saving for a down payment. Uh, maybe take some of your income, save it for future kids, or you got to begin living like you're married to just prepare yourself for this, this, this process that, that is going to happen. Be faithful with your current life and work towards your future marriage. Secondly, study and learn how to be effective in this active seating, uh, season of dating. Because for a lot of people, it'll be an active seating, uh, season. Uh, I know one guy who said it was like 20 hour a week job. <laughs> he said dating. I mean, going online into websites and trying to connect with people. He said it was, it was like a, a part-time job. And it's an active seating. And a season. 
and it's going to take some work. Do you know every single married couple, somewhere along the way, it started with a conversation? Uh, maybe you want to learn how to have good conversations. <laughs> you got to learn, uh, there's lots of stuff on YouTube, how to, you know, chit-chat and small talk and how to, you know, in a crowd, come up to somebody and say, you know, you don't just say, hey, you want to marry me? I mean, <laughs> start small. Um, so study and learn, you become effective in the season of dating. Number three, you want to create natural, low-pressure bridges and cultivate a friendship. Again, it's not a good idea to go on a first date and just say, hey, do you want to get married? How many kids do you want to have? That's way too fast. The best marriages are built on friendships. So start there. Just, I just want to make a friend. And find low-pressure situations. I mean, church can be a low-pressure situation. Getting involved in the gym. Cody's got an awesome gym. You can go there. I don't know. There's probably singles there. Uh, go to a, you know, uh, get involved in a club or something or go uh, online. You know, online dating does work. I, we met a couple yesterday at the wedding who, passionately in love, uh, they met online. Um, and so create natural low-pressure bridges. Try to cultivate a friendship. Uh, just kind of start doing stuff together, you know, just going on a hike or just, just create a friendship. And out of that, you can move forward. Now, you're going to be probably rejected. And this is just a part of, of love. And this is the hard part. That when you offer yourself to somebody, you will be rejected. But again, this is where you need to be grounded. Your identity needs to be grounded in Jesus. And if you're rejected, you just go back to who you are in Christ. And you go again. Uh, number four, uh, look for someone who shares your faith in Jesus. Or at least someone who is open to it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, A woman is bound to her husband for as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. And again, whenever you read the Bible, you always need to go back to the culture. And you notice this is said to women, not to men, because in that day, uh, a woman was always under the authority or control of a man. Uh, for, as a daughter, you'd be under the control of your father. When you were married, you were under the control of your husband. So for a, a woman to marry someone who wasn't a Christian, the man would say, you can't go to church. And she had no option, because under the authority of the husband. Uh, she could say, yeah, I don't want you exercising your faith. So, I mean, that's kind of it to your faith. You'd have to be very private. So Paul says to women, make sure if you marry someone, make sure they love Jesus. Um, so it's important that you look for someone who loves Jesus, but that's not always possible, especially in this area, because the reality is we have fewer Christians here than pretty much anywhere on the planet. <laughs> it's like 2 or 3%, so your options are really limited. I mean, like the mega church here is like 100 people. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> uh, so some people will go out to like a singles. They have awesome singles conferences that are Christians you can go to. Again, there's Christian dating sites you can go to. Um, but at minimum, at least you want to find someone who is open to your faith. And there are actually a number of people in this room who have been married. And they first started dating someone who was not a Christian, but they were open to it. And, and through, I mean, the love of Christ is pretty irresistible when you live that way. And eventually those people give their life to Jesus. And we got to be careful, of course. Um, uh, but you want to look for someone who shares your faith or at least someone who's open. If you can meet someone who's just like, nah, nah, Jesus sucks. You know, I don't, want any, don't ever talk about it. Then it's probably not someone that's going to work for you. Because if Jesus is... You know, the one we get our identity from and our value and worth and where we get our life from. To be married to someone who is completely against that, it just becomes very, very difficult. Uh, number five, 
Somewhere along the line, you gotta make a uh, move that clearly expresses romantic intent when you feel a strong connection. So you're gonna develop this friendship, but eventually, you gotta say something like, I like you, or I love you, or I have romantic feelings towards you. You gotta move it forward. Sometimes relationships just get stuck in the friendship, and everybody's afraid to move ahead. Uh, number six, uh, you wanna find the answers to important questions during your time of dating. This is why things like premarital counseling can be really important because we try to ask all the hard questions and make you talk about things that you wouldn't normally talk about. Uh, but you can do this while dating. You know, what are your fears? What are your hopes? What are your, what are your dreams? I mean, you know, you know, what were some of the biggest hurts in your life growing up? Because that will all shape your relationship. And lastly, allow God to lead and allow God to surprise you. Uh, sometimes God will surprise you. God surprised it. Uh, that's Boaz and, uh, Boaz and Ruth, by the way. Uh, Boaz was a, like a wealthy landowner. <laughs> and Ruth was a widowed Moabite peasant. And in Boaz's mind, I mean, he's probably like, I'm going to marry some other wealthy woman out there. And that's probably who he's looking to. He probably wasn't looking to the fields for peasant women. This peasant Moabite woman was probably like, well, he's way out of my class. There's no way. i got to look for another peasant or something like that. Or... Um, she, was, she was widowed, but God was at work. God influenced the situation, and just like us, they had to work alongside God. They didn't just sit there and wait for God to drop a guy or a girl out of the sky. They had to work with God, and it, and it ended up to be a beautiful relationship, surprising to them both. And God may surprise you, bringing someone along, or you may connect with someone that surprises you a little bit, so allow God to lead. Last verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Just keep the Lord ahead of you, and trust him with all your heart. Be praying, be listening, be active, get to work, and just see what God does. So Father, we thank you that we have a home in your family. God, we thank you that ultimately there's not a single person here who's going to be unmarried because one day, God, as we as the bride of Christ are going to be married in a sense. God, we thank you that you love us. And this morning, uh, God, we just pray blessing and hope over those in this room who are single and wanting to be connected with somebody. God, we pray you'd go ahead of them. We pray you'd give them wisdom. We pray you'd open up doors. God, we pray you close doors if they go in the wrong direction. God, we pray that you would bless them mightily. You keep them encouraged. You keep their identity founded in you. In Jesus' name.